May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you who don't know, my wife Caroline and I, we have two boys. One is Jude. His, he's four turning five in March. And the other is Rowan, who's two, which is hard to believe. And the thing that I've learned probably the most about being a parent is that children want what they want when they want it. They want what they want when they want it. This is something that we've been learning a lot lately because Jude has uh, Jude's always been very verbal, but now Rowan is also verbal. And so they can both tell you exactly what they want when they want it. And so even last night, uh, Jude is very excited about the Buffalo Bills game today. He's a Buffalo Bills fan. So he was wearing his Buffalo Bills helmet and his Buffalo Bills jersey, and he was running around last night uh, playing the Buffalo Bills game today. Um, uh, ironically, the Buffalo Bills won, I'm told. But Rowan walks in the room, sees Jude in his outfit, and immediately says, I want the Buffalo Bills helmet, and goes over, and instead of asking nicely, instead of waiting his turn, immediately tries to yank the helmet off of Jude. So you have to separate them into their corners, you know, and make sure everything calms down before the next round. Um, but the, the, the kids want what they want when they want it. They want what they want when they want it. And you know what the thing is? Us adults, we're really not that different, are we? <laughs> We want what we want when we want it, Um, and we're not that patient. In fact, most of our sins are us wanting something that we either shouldn't have or, or it's not the right time to have. And it's interesting because, you know, the opposite of this this way of being is, is what we call delayed gratification. And, and psychologists and neuroscientists have done a lot of research on this, and they believe that being able to control your response to desires makes you it brings you a number of benefits. It makes you a better worker, a more productive worker. It gives you better mental stability. It makes you more socially competent. And most important of all, it reduces your engagement in harmful and addictive behaviors if you're able to have that kind of delayed gratification. But of course, this doesn't come naturally to many of us. Maybe it comes naturally to you. I can assure you it does not come naturally to me. But it is what's commanded of us. And we saw that in this morning's reading from the epistle, Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In other words, don't seek revenge. That tit-for-tat way of being in the world is ultimately the inability to delay gratification. It's wanting what you want right now. It's the impulsive desire to get yours. Yet God in his wisdom has arranged our salvation to occur in a way that unfolds. It's not something that happens instantaneously at least not for most of us, but rather we become who we're supposed to be as we learn to participate with the grace that he gives us. Redemption is gradual and it's progressive. It happens not in our time, not when we want it. It happens in God's time. And so the Christian life really is about trusting in God, learning to trust in God. In our Old Testament reading from Isaiah this morning, the prophet is speaking to Israel in the future from where he's standing. He's addressing them about 40, 50 years down the road during their exile from their homeland. And in the midst of that exile, the prophet doesn't really give them much by way of judgment or condemnation, quite the opposite. He, he really emphasizes themes of assurance and comfort, reminding them first of their history. Israel descends from Abraham, he tells them. And Abraham was God's friend. What a cool title to have. I want to be God's friend one day. 
God is with them even in the midst of their troubles. And so Isaiah exhorts the people, don't fear, don't dismay, because even in exile, even being separated from your homeland, even in the midst of trial and tribulation, God is present with them. And so he looks forward. He he points them forward to anticipation of a time when they would be returned from the corners of the earth back to their homeland. And to describe this wonderful homecoming, he uses the metaphor of springs in the desert, a theme that we looked at in Advent a little bit, also from Isaiah. The church father, Tertullian, of course, reminds us that this is not Isaiah saying that, that, uh, that God is a really good master of irrigation, but rather he's a miracle worker. He can make water appear where there was no water. But the Israelites who are receiving this message from Isaiah, they are not there yet. They have to wait They have to anticipate. They're dwelling in that kind of uncomfortable, they have the promise but not the fulfillment of the promise yet. We see this kind of looking forward, I think, in the gospel reading from today where Jesus turns water into wine. We all know the story. The wedding party runs out of wine. Jesus takes some water, turns it into wine, and the wedding coordinator is shocked at how good the wine is because typically... You give people the good wine first, and once they're 12 sheets to the wind, you give them the lesser quality stuff because at that point, they won't know the difference. But Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus saves the best for last. This is true of the wine at the wedding feast, but it's also true about what happens in many of us, right? Because it's true that that all of us who are baptized have been changed. According to Romans chapter 6, The baptized person dies with Christ and is raised a new creation, buried with him in his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. The baptized person goes from being a non-Christian prior to their baptism to being a Christian after their baptism. And that's an indelible mark. No one can take that away from you. You are a Christian. At the same time, when we talk about Christians, we often use uh, terms from child development. Someone who's just baptized We often call them a baby Christian. They're a baby Christian or maybe a toddler Christian. I feel like I'm a toddler Christian most days. But eventually they grow into full maturity. So there's this kind of already not yet tension about being a Christian, being a Christian person. We've already been decisively incorporated into Christ through baptism. But I think most of us who have been baptized, if I did a survey, and I won't, but if I did a survey, most of us would say we haven't really reached the end point. We are not what we should be yet. The culmination of our baptism, that thing that's promised to us there, is still yet to come, at least in its full form. What God says about us in baptism becomes actualized. But this often happens for us through an arduous process that has many fits and starts. It's not easy. Redemption is gradual and progressive. It's gradual and progressive. But as our collect says this morning, God will stretch forth his right hand to help and defend us despite our infirmities. So any and all progress that's made in the Christian life is made from this starting point, the acknowledgement of our complete and total dependence on him. And so for those of us who are interested in walking this Christian life, we have two paths that we can follow this morning. One is a way of anxiety, and the other is a way of trust. The anxious Christian thinks that they have the power in and of themselves to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They think that if they just act nice enough, or if they just do enough good things, then they can finally convince God to love them just enough. The downside to this way of thinking is 
what happens when we don't act nicely? If we make God love us by being good, what happens when we're bad? I think God makes the Christian life a progressive venture to cure us of this way of thinking. Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know, not only is this not how it works, but if you slip into that mentality, it often becomes very unhealthy. And so that brings us to that second path. Instead of being anxious, we can trust in him. We can trust that he knows what he's doing when he saves the best for last. We can trust that beautiful promise from God given to us through the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, that he, which have begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can trust that the deserts of our hearts will become fertile ground filled with springs as we depend on the grace that he gives us. Now, there are a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about church growth. That's a term you hear a lot, right? You go to a Christian bookstore and there's a million different books, all with different strategies and techniques, right? A proliferation of programs, gimmicks, Light shows, charismatic personalities, celebrity pastors are often put forward as means of evangelism. But these are really symptomatic of that kind of anxious Christianity. What Isaiah tells us is that when God works in us, people can see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. By trusting in God to do what he does By participating with the grace that he offers us week after week after week, we become icons of the gospel, little windows into the gospel story. We become magnets who draw people to God. This is what we're about as the church. As God grows us, we become fruitful and bring others to him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.